Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the sixth annual conference, China's Power Up for Debate. I'm Bonnie Lin, director of the China Power Project and senior fellow for Asian Security at CSIS. Today, we are delighted and honored to have Secretary of the United States Army Christine Warmuth with us to deliver the conference's first keynote on China's growing military challenge to the United States and the world. After decades of modernization and rising defense budgets, the PLA, the Chinese People's Liberation Army, has transformed itself into one of the world's most formidable militaries. The Department of Defense's latest China military power report, released just this last month, notes that China has become the department's top pacing challenge and states that the PRC is the only competitor capable of combining its economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to mount a sustained challenge to a stable and open international system. At the same time, we've seen in the recent years that Beijing has shown a growing willingness to assert itself militarily in the East China Sea, Taiwan Strait, the South China Sea, as well as along its disputed border with India, raising the specter of conflict in the region. So as China continues to build up its military capabilities, the United States and its allies will need to adapt in order to deter unwanted Chinese action while also maintaining peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific. Today and here to discuss these issues and more, we're joined by Secretary Christine Wormuth, who currently serves as the 25th Secretary of the U.S. Army, the senior civilian official within the Department of Defense responsible for all matters related to the U.S. Army. Before being confirmed to her current position, she was a director of the International Defense and Security Center at the RAND Corporation, where she was a frequent writer and speaker on foreign policy, national security, and homeland security issues. Prior to RAND, Secretary Wormuth served in several roles in the Obama administration, including special assistant to the president, senior director for defense at the National Security Council, and Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Strategy, Plans, and Forces. From 2014 to 2016, she served in DOD as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, where she advised the Secretary of Defense on the full range of regional and functional national security issues. She also worked in the private sector on defense issues and was also a senior fellow here at CSIS for five years. Christine, thank you for joining us today. And let me turn to you for your opening remarks. Thanks, Bonnie. It is such a pleasure uh, to be joining you and CSIS this morning uh, for this conference. I, I really appreciate being here. I have so many fond memories of CSIS with so many terrific colleagues, so it's just a, a pleasure to join you. Some may wonder why the Army Secretary is a keynote speaker for a conference on China. But the reality is that competing militarily and strengthening deterrence in the Indo-Pacific is a joint undertaking. And certainly any potential military conflict with China would require the entire joint force, not just air and maritime, uh, air and maritime forces. So I wanted to take the opportunity to talk a little bit today about how I see the China challenge, how it's evolved over the last 20 years, how it looks today, and what I see as the army role in the Indo-Pacific. As you all know very well, while the United States was countering insurgency and combating terrorism in the Middle East for the last 20 years, the PRC very deliberately began what has become a sweeping military modernization effort, as Dr. Lin indicated. The Gulf War, the 1996 Taiwan Straits crisis, 
the accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade in 1999, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Beijing saw in these events in, in different ways the power of the US military. And they appear to have been catalysts for China to begin figuring out whether the PLA could undermine key elements of the American military's power projection model and to much more rapidly modernize their own military forces so that they could face a strong enemy. A more powerful Chinese military helps to underwrite Beijing's strategy to achieve rejuvenation of the Chinese nation by 2049, to include development of the PLA into a world-class military by mid-century. China's focus on modernizing its military capabilities will strengthen its ability to coerce Taiwan and rival claimants in territorial disputes, project power globally, and counter interventions along the PRC's periphery. Today, the PLA has approximately 2 million personnel in its regular armed forces. China has the largest Navy in the world numerically, the largest aviation force in the Indo-Pacific region, and 975,000 active duty personnel in its, armed, in its army combat units. Its rocket forces are embarking on a significant expansion of its nuclear arsenal, and its strategic support force centralizes the PLA's space, cyber, electronic information, and psychological warfare capabilities. As this audience knows well, China has capabilities today to attack our sensors in space and our communication links that largely run through space. China has missiles that can sink ships and bring down airplanes. They have missiles that can reach U.S. bases in Japan and Guam, exposing our planes and runway to attack. Not only does China have advanced precision weapons, it has them in large and growing quantities. And just recently, China conducted a missile test that sent a missile around the world, dropping off a hypersonic vehicle that glided all the way back to China, where it then struck a test target. Given the distance that China has come militarily in the last 20 years, we have to be clear-eyed about the challenge we now face. We shouldn't be seeking, in my view, a second Cold War or asking our allies and partners to choose between the United States and China. But we also should not underestimate China and the challenge it poses for the United States. This is why Secretary Austin calls China the pacing challenge for DOD. As I said in my confirmation hearing, we are at a strategic crossroads. We are in a competition with China that has far-reaching consequences. And while I firmly believe the most important dimensions of this competition are not the military ones, the military piece is a foundational element that we have to get right. So let me say a few words about the role I see the Army in particular playing in this competition and address, and address what the Army will contribute as part of the joint force should competition transition into outright conflict. Fundamentally, a core competitive advantage we have in the Indo-Pacific is our network of allies and partners. We're always stronger when we work together with our friends. And the Army has very strong relationships in the region. I believe an overarching mission for the Army is to provide assurances on the ground to our friends in the region that the United States will be there for them. We are building these relationships by being forward in the theater and by exercising together, whether it is with the Philippines and Thailand as part of Pacific Pathways or with Australia and Japan in exercises like Talisman Sabre and Orient Shield. 
Through its Pacific Pathways initiative, U.S. Army Pacific has Army units partnering with allies and partners in the region for training and extended deployments to include staying in the region for up to six months. Our fifth Security Force Assistance Brigade, which is aligned to Indo-PACOM, operates frequently in the region. Elements of the fifth FSFAB, which is a mouthful, have been on the ground working with partners in Thailand, Indonesia, and India, just to name a few. And finally, we've recently begun experimenting in the region with employment of our first multi-domain task force, a formation designed to help us better understand the environment develop potential target information and bring together non-kinetic and kinetic capabilities. Think space, cyber, electronic warfare, as well as long-range fires. These relationships and regular interactions demonstrate our commitment to maintaining stability in the region, something our allies and partners tell us routinely that they want. It also has for potentially increased access in the event of a crisis and enhance deterrence by demonstrating our ability to work together. But what if deterrence were to fail despite our best efforts? What role would the Army play? Unfortunately, much of this conversation to date has been framed around battles over the defense budget or inter-service rivalries, or lost in a sea of acronyms like A2AD, MDO, MDTF, and LRPF. So let me try to articulate plainly what role the Army could play in a conflict in the Indo-Pacific region. In my view, the Army will have at least five core tasks if a conflict breaks out. And these are tasks the Army can usefully per perform without presuming substantial expansion of Army permanent presence in the region in the near-term future. First, we will serve as the linchpin service for the Joint Force. What I mean by that is that the Army will establish, build up, secure, and protect staging areas and joint operating bases for air and naval forces in theater. We will be prepared to provide integrated air and missile defense, both for fixed sites and using mobile elements. We will provide area security and quick reaction forces when needed. Second, we will sustain the joint force across the vast distances of the Indo-Pacific theater using Army theater support capabilities. The Army, for example, will provide much of the secure communications network backbone. We will generate intra-theater distribution networks to help keep the joint force supplied from dispersed locations. And we will maintain munition stockpiles and forward arming and refueling points. Third, we can provide command and control at multiple operational levels to coordinate, synchronize, sustain, and defend ongoing joint operations using scalable, tailorable combined joint task force headquarters. The Army with its substantial planning and operations capacity at the division and core level is uniquely well-placed to provide command and control for the joint force. Fourth, the Army will provide ground-based long-range fires as part of the Joint Forces strike capabilities. Using our long-range hypersonic weapons, mid-range capability and precision strike missiles, all of which we will begin fielding in FY23, we will be able to interdict fires across sea lines of communication, suppress enemy air defenses, and provide counterfires against mobile targets. Fifth, if required, the Army can counterattack using its maneuver forces, for example, infantry, striker elements, and combat aviation brigades, to restore the territorial integrity of our allies and partners. 
And lastly, something that is often overlooked is the likelihood that a conflict in the Indo-Pacific will also include attacks on the US homeland. Here too, the army will be important. For example, if there are cyber attacks on critical infrastructure, it's very likely that the army will be called upon to provide defense support to civil authorities, much as it does frequently in response to natural disasters every year. But in the case of a conflict, the scale could be much bigger. I'll close by noting that the army has embarked on the most comprehensive effort to modernize itself in 40 years. And the majority of the new systems that we are developing and fielding will be relevant to specific operational challenges that we see in the Indo-Pacific. And we are testing and experimenting with these new capabilities day in and day out, and not just by ourselves. Last year, we launched an initiative, Project Convergence, to enable us to explore how best to apply new technologies to some of the most pressing operational challenges we're likely to face in the future. This year at Project Convergence 21, which just ended earlier this month in Yuma, Arizona, we expanded the effort to include our sister services so that we could learn together how to connect and integrate our data, sensors, and shooters over the kinds of vast distances one would encounter in the Indo-Pacific. And we experimented with 100 new technologies using vignettes representative of the various anti-access and area denial challenges we're likely to face. The Indo-Pacific region is a region of great opportunity for the United States, but also real challenges. The Army is stepping up to that challenge, both in terms of how we contribute to this country's ability to compete with China and our ability to deter coercion and aggression in the region. No one service can meet the challenge alone, which is why we are focused on learning, experimenting, and operating in the region as part of the joint force. Thanks, and back over to you, Bonnie. Thank you very much, Secretary Wormuth. Thank you for a very rich uh, keynote. I had quite a bit of uh, new elements that I hadn't heard before. I was particularly struck by the five core tasks that you outlined for what, how the Army could play, uh, the role that the Army could play in a potential conflict. And you had mentioned um, as a caveat uh, to these five core tasks that none of these assume that there will be a substantial expansion of the Army's permanent posture in the region in the near future. Do you see beyond these core tasks that if the Army was to be able to expand its presence in the, in the Pacific, that the Army could take on additional tasks? Or would you see these five core tasks as largely the main tasks that the Army would have moving, to, moving into the future? I think these are the five core tasks that the Army would perform in general, uh, regardless of whether we are able to shift our posture in the region. That said, as you know well, uh, you know, the United States military footprint in the theater has been heavily oriented uh, towards the northeast part of the region. And I think there, there is very much a desire to be able to expand our access and basing arrangements more into Southeast Asia, because if we were able to do that, uh, we would have more, um, you know, we would have a more dispersed posture that would give us much more flexibility. So looking forward, I think it is very much in, in our interest and in the interest of our allies and partners to explore how we can shift that posture over time. But um, my own view is that we, we need to be realistic about what is possible. And as we look at the operational challenges, we need to have realistic assumptions about the locations from where we might be able to operate. Thank you. And related to this question is, 
when you developed uh, this framework of the five core um, roles for the army, how did you think about the various threats or challenges that China poses? Uh, was there an emphasis uh, in terms of these roles for the army on, for example, dealing with contingencies in Northeast Asia, or did these uh, five core roles for the army consider all the range of contingencies? In short, I, I guess my question to you is, from your perspective, what are the China ch military challenges that you are most concerned with, and what are and if there are particular con contingencies that you focus on the most? Well, you know, of, of course, we want to be flexible. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that we found here in the Department of Defense and the Army is we don't have a very good track record of predicting where we will be called upon to operate. Uh, so we try to think about think broadly about the kinds of operational challenges we might face. Uh, but, you know, certainly, I think in terms of thinking about potential contingencies, we, we in the department are thinking about, uh, you know, obviously, Japan is worried, for example, about the Senkakus. Uh, we have a treaty with Japan. Uh, that's a, a, a contingency, I think, that we think about here in the department. There's obviously been quite a bit of discussion about um, China's very aggressive actions right now towards Taiwan with the various violations of their uh, ADIS. So that is something I think that the department thinks about. Uh, and then, you know, there's unfortunately uh, also the possibility for misunderstandings or miscalculations in the South China Sea area. So the kinds of things that the Army might be called upon to do are, are potentially relevant to any of those kinds of contingencies. Thank you, Christine. Let me uh, uh, pause here very quickly to provide instructions for folks on how to submit questions for Q&A. I saw that a number of folks have already figured out how to use Zoom to submit questions. You, um, you go to the, um, the chat box and you type in your questions and I'll be able to see them. So as I'm waiting for more questions to load, Christine, let me um, ask you another question. So a term that we have been seeing uh, quite a bit from the Department of Defense is uh, integrated deterrence. Could you talk a bit about what that means in terms of how the US Army operates in the Indo-Pacific and how you interpret and are operationalizing this term? Uh, well, sorry, this concept. Sure. Um in my view, the concept of integrated deterrence is really trying to think about how can we present a strong deterrent across domains? You know, we really have to not just think about the air domain, the maritime domain, the land domain. We need to be, you know, thinking about newer domains, if you will, cyberspace, but also thinking holistically about how we um, operate across those domains. It's also thinking in an integrated way about how we deter across the spectrum of conflict, uh, meaning you know, in, in, uh, in a steady state period, uh, we need to be thinking about how we, deserve, how we deter uh, gray zone operations and activities you know, all the way through crisis and up to potentially a high-end conflict. It's thinking about how can we integrate our capabilities, not just in the joint force, but with uh, whole of government, you know, something we talk about very much, which I think is very important. You know, the military is not the only tool. We need to be thinking about diplomacy, economic tools. And then we also need to be thinking about integrating, um, a, you know, beyond the U.S. government to our allies and partners. And then finally, thinking about deterrence over time. You know, how do we, what do we need to do today as a country to deter aggression in the region? 
And then, you know, looking out five years, looking out 10 years. So for the Army in particular, you know, on the domain piece, we are, um, we have developed a concept called multi-domain operations, and we are actually very close to turning that concept into formal doctrine for the Army, which will very much inform how we train and uh, think about the future of warfare. We are, in terms of, uh, you know, whole of government, we are working very closely, again, not just with the joint force, but trying to make sure that we are synchronized with the Office of the Secretary of Defense uh, and the broader government. And then, you know, again, with, in terms of allies and partners, as I said in my remarks, we are very, very focused on operating in the region with our allies and partners and strengthening, and strengthening our relationships and, um, you know, trying to really make sure that we, we are engaged in exercises and deployments in a very regular, persistent way in the theater. So those are all examples of how we're uh, trying to operationalize integrated deterrence. Thank you. So a number of questions have come in from the audience. One question from Bloomberg uh, is, Secretary Warmuth, does the Army have agreements yet with any nations in or near the first iron chain that would allow the service to actually deploy long range fires to fire at Chinese assets? This was an issue when PACOM first floated the idea at this March? We are still, you know, again, the Army, first of all, um, you know, we take our cues from the Office of the Secretary of Defense and the State Department. So those, you know, bigger DOD and state are leading the way in terms of any diplomatic talks with countries about access and basing. You know, right now, um, we have not yet fielded our long range fire capabilities. Uh, ultimately, you know, initially, I think they are much more likely to be fielded on uh, United States territory. Um, but, but certainly those are the kinds of capabilities that we will be discussing with close allies and partners. And the Army is ready, you know, when called upon to be able to um, put those kinds of capabilities in the region. But it's really state and DOD that will take the lead in those discussions. Great, thank you. Uh, there were a couple of long range fire questions that I think you, you answered uh, many of them together. Um, a related question is, um, how is the Army thinking differently, if any, about China, the China challenge than your service counterparts, such as the US Air Force or the Navy? Well, you know, I, I think um, fundamentally, we're frankly sort of trying to think, um, I don't wanna say trying to think as a group because the last thing we want is groupthink. <laughs> But, but I think in a very positive way, we are trying to work with our sister services to have an integrated, uh, comprehensive approach to how we think about the China challenge. And again, that's why I think it's so significant that we're working with the Air Force, Navy, Marines, and the Space Force in things like Project Convergence. But I think, you know, a place, obviously, where the Army adds unique value is in those relationships with armies in the region on the ground. So, you know, using units like our security force assistance brigades, which were, you know, frankly, originally designed uh, to deal with sort of advising and assisting in places like Afghanistan. The reality is we have used our fifth SFAB, the one that's aligned to Indo-PACOM, um, extensively in the region to work with countries to build interoperability to work on specific you know operational tasks so we have a, a you know an on-the-ground relationship with countries in the region that is different from what uh, the Air Force and Navy have for example mm -hmm. 
so another question related actually to the previous one. Uh, and I think actually, uh, Secretary Moore, you addressed this quite a bit in your speech, but, but, but since we have this question, I think it's important to reemphasize some of the points that you already made. So this question is, um, the Army is often perceived as a secondary actor in the Indo-Pacific compared to the Navy, Marines, and Air Force. What specific strengths does the Army bring to strategic competition with China in this region that sets it apart with other service branches? I know you've made many of these points before, but I think given this question, it might be useful to just reemphasize the point, some of the points you made, but also elaborate on this. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, and I think the question reflects kind of a, a theme that has um, been out there around sort of the whole issue of the role of the Army in the Pacific, so I'm happy to address it. You know, I think, uh, again, during the competition phase, if you will, or sort of the, you know, the campaigning phase of competition, the Army, I think, plays a unique role in terms of having those on-the-ground relationships where, uh, you know, we are Many of the uh, countries in the region, the army in those nations is sort of the most prominent service in their own militaries. Um, so the kinds of relationships and access that, that our army can bring, I think is somewhat unique. Again, that's you know, most important, I think, in the competition phase. But in terms of a potential conflict, you know, I, I do think a, a large part of what the US Army would bring is what I would call an enabling role uh, for the air and maritime forces. But something that the Army can do uniquely is that kind of set the theater uh, function that is very important in a region like the Indo-Pacific where the distances are so large. I mean, we will have to be, um, we will, you know, the joint force will be dispersed throughout the region. Um, we will be operating from many different bases there has to be a way of distributing supplies, munitions, fuel to the entire joint force to providing command and control, you know, over that very wide area. And uh, the army, I think, is very well positioned to do that. And then offensively, you know, again, we uh, will bring that long range precision fires capability, the ability to, you know, um, an anti-ship missile, you know, capability, for example. So there's absolutely an offensive role for the Army in the Pacific, um, but, but there's also, I think, a very important enabling role as well. Thank you. Uh, we have a couple of questions for, from the audience on the recently approved release Global Posture Review. So I'm going to group the questions together and ask it relatively broadly. Uh, what does the Global Posture Review mean for the Army? What are some of the major changes that you might see underway uh, in terms of how the Army might implement the Global Posture Review? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think for us, a part of, a, an important part of the Global Posture Review was thinking about where we can um, increase opportunities for pre-positioning of equipment and stocks. So that is something that um, you know, we will be looking at and looking at ways to put more into the region to um, use our already pre-positioned assets in the region that are there you know, more efficiently so that we can get more bang for our buck out of what we already have there. Um, those are probably the biggest things for us. You know, again, I, I think um, it was very important that Secretary Austin was able to make as much progress as he did with the Philippines and the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. You know, the, we will be taking our cues from the kinds of diplomatic talks that DOD and state have, but we are very interested in 
um, broadening the access and basing arrangements that that we already have and, and building on that. And I think the the, the Indo-Pacific part of the Global Posture Review is really looking at that. There were some other things in the Global Posture Review that were relevant for the Army, but that was much more in the European theater. Great, thank you. A couple of questions focus more on different regional developments. Uh, so one question is, uh, um, Taiwan has featured prominently uh, in much of the recent discussion about risk of US tensions or conflict with China. How has the Army prepared to deal with a Taiwan contingency? Well, I think fundamentally, you know, what, what's most important is that we collectively work to avoid a war in the region. You know, obviously that's, that's the, the best strategy is to make sure that our deterrent posture is sufficiently strong that um, President Xi, you know, every day um, to the extent that he might think about trying to forcibly reunify with Taiwan would decide that, you know, today is not the day to do that. And so what we're thinking about is how can the Army contribute to presenting the most robust deterrent posture in the region? And again, that's where uh, we are putting a lot of emphasis on the um, work that we're doing to strengthen our relationships with allies and partners in the region. But it's also about you know, developing and fielding some of the new capabilities that the Army is, um, is working for right now. And, you know, we have uh, six broad modernization priorities. Long range fires is one of those. Uh, so, you know, I think that we're you know, going to be fielding the long range hypersonic weapon, the precision strike missile, our range capability starting next year. That will contribute to our uh, deterrent posture. We are also doing quite a bit to uh, strengthen our network capability. We're looking at things like mobile protective to give additional protection to our infantry forces. I think all of that helps strengthen our, um, our deterrent posture and also, frankly, more, um, you know, perhaps not a sexy thing, but very, very important. You know, we're looking at modernizing our Army watercraft, you know, which would play, again, a very important role in providing that distribution network. Uh, we're looking at strengthening our integrated and air missile defense capabilities with things like the indirect um, fire protection capability. Those all contribute, I think, to our deterrent posture uh, broadly in the region. Great, thank you. I think we might be experiencing some sound issues uh, uh, from your end, but maybe my technical team on CSI can help work on some of the issues while uh, I pose the next question to you. Uh, so we've covered quite a bit uh, on China's maritime disputes. Um, so the next question is related to we're also seeing um, that the China is increasingly concerned about stability on its Western regions. Are you concerned with developments on the China-India border and what role might the US Army play in the event of a China-India border clash? I think you know, one has to pay close attention to developments on the border between India and China. You know, they're both nations. You know, we've seen tensions rise uh, in the border region there and I think ways that are concerning um, what, you know, what we're doing, I mean, India is obviously a major defense partner for the United States. Our government has very strong bilateral ties. The Army, what we've been doing is uh, providing some material support to India when they've asked for it. And I think we would continue to do that and look favorably upon those kinds of requests. For example, last summer, the Indian government asked us for 
cold weather gear and um, sleeping bags, for example, to help support them at the line of control. Um, and we, we were able to give them actually 10,000 sets of cold weather gear and sleeping bags. Actually going to be giving them some more next spring. And I think they very much welcome that. Um, that's the kind of you know, support I think that we would look to continue. Obviously, also have a robust foreign military sales uh, arrangement with India, and the Army provides them with things like howitzers, Apaches, Chinook helicopters. Uh, so, so we're trying to support India in that way. And again, we also, as I mentioned in my remarks, uh, you know, exercise regularly with them. We have bilateral talks with them, and so on. Uh, sorry, uh, Secretary Wormuth, I think you, your sound may have actually cut off in the last sentence. Can you, could you just say, say something just to make sure we can still hear you? Sure. Okay, great. Okay, we can still hear you. I, I just, uh, your last sentence is cut off and I wasn't sure if given the uh, technical issues. Um, uh, so it, sounds, it seems like the issues are not necessarily on our side. So my apologies if maybe someone on your team could, uh, could go around to see if they could do something on your end while I... Uh, uh, pose another. I think uh, maybe if someone on your team could just check your mic, that would be uh, super helpful. Nothing has changed in my office here, so I'm not sure what, what would be happening. Yeah, and maybe the Chinese are listening to this and decided that your remarks were too excellent that they wanted to shorten it. So let me keep on uh, moving through the questions. And me, what we'll try to do is we'll try to have a transcript of this such that for folks who aren't able to listen to the audio clearly, you'll at least be able to see the secretary's answers in print afterwards. Uh, so we have a couple of other regional questions. One is related to China, Russia. And let me focus, uh, given the focus on China, let me focus, uh, narrow this question down a bit to ask, um, Secretary Warren, are you concerned, at least in the near future, that there might be Ch China-Russia collaboration or Russia might support China if China was to engage in any of its contingencies on its uh, borders. So just focusing on the Indo-Pacific, not so much whether China might work with Russia elsewhere. Do you, is, that a, is, that, is that a high level concern for you or is that something that you're watching that might be more of a concern uh, as we move further into the future? I think we certainly have to be looking at the cooperation between uh, China and Russia. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting, I think that um, the two countries have moved clearly closer over the last few years. You know, for example, you see Russia inviting Chinese forces to participate in their major military exercises like the Pod, um, and and just recently, you know, President Putin's foreign minister, um, Defense Minister Shoigu, have I think made some comments, made negative comments about uh, U.S. actions region and have essentially been, you know, sort of supporting, I would say, Chinese talking points, uh, you know, whether it's our growing relationship with the Quad countries. Uh, so I think we do need to be concerned about that. Ultimately, you know, China is a rising power and Russia's, you know, I think economic long-term prospects are such that, um, you know, I think ultimately that the, Interesting to see how that relationship evolves uh, five to ten years from now. But right now, I think we continue to be concerned about the level of cooperation. Great, thank you. Uh, so we have a, another question uh, related to uh, India and the Quad. 
uh, this is a little bit more army specific and, and maybe there is not, uh, not that clear of a uh, uh, army role yet just because the, the quad right now is not so much a military uh, alliance. But I did want to pose this question is to what extent is the army supporting efforts to strengthen the quad and in, in particular with India? And I would say, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. As you know well, Dr. Lin, the quad is, you know, um, right now, I think much more than it is a military forum, but certainly we have strong bilateral defense relationships with Australia, Japan, India, uh, and, and the Army, you know, wants to, wants to support that. You know, again, I, I spoke in an earlier um, Q&A about what we're doing with India right now. Um, we have strong relationships with them. General McConville, our chief of staff of the Army, has, you know, talks with his counterpart in the Indian Army. And we will certainly look for, you know, continued opportunities to work closely with India and, um, you know, can see how the, the quad develops over time uh, to see if the military dimension is built out. Great, thank you. Uh, so I think we're getting quite a bit of uh, feedback from the audience that it's uh, very, very difficult to um, hear you. So maybe if you are okay, I will try to wrap this up five minutes early. So that way it's not, um, uh, uh, it, it, we, we can maybe fill in some of the time at a later point. Uh, so let me just close with uh, uh, one quick question and then a larger question. So one quick question is um, a comment from uh, one of the leading analysts of the PLA. Uh, so the U.S. Army has the strongest foreign area officer program among the services. Um, what did the uh, what, what is what is the Army doing now to ensure the health of that program, particularly with regard to the Indo-Pacific? That's a, a specific question. And the larger question I wanted to end with is, Secretary Warmuth, as you think about all the range of issues and all the different ways that China is could be a challenge to the U.S. Army, what keeps you up at night? So feel free in the last minute or so to cover any of those questions. And um, then after your response, I will turn it to, I will spend a minute or so covering our next um, event, but, and then we'll wrap it up from there. This is Secretary Wormuth, last comments for you. Sure, and again, I, I'm sorry that we're having audio problems. Um, our FAO program is, is a very strong one. We're very proud of the of our foreign assistance officers uh, and uh, actually one of our, um, Soldier of the Year contestants was actually a, a FAO with Mandarin language skills. So we are um, very much putting, you know, want to continue to put a strong focus on our FAO program and, and more broadly, frankly, for um, military education for officers and, and, and leaders, we are putting a focus on China and the Indo-Pacific. So that is, you know, I think we are, we are trying to build out our expertise inside the army about China um, you know, in a way that is much more like the kind of expertise that the army had, you know, 30 years ago during the Cold War about the Soviet Union. Um, and then, and then, Bonnie, to your question about sort of, you know, what keeps me up at night, I think, um, you know, there, there's a lot to worry about, but um, what I worry about quite a bit is the, the possibility for a misunderstanding or a miscalculation that you know could lead us into a conflict. And to some extent, I think um, 
you know, we have to, we, again, I think it's very important that we avoid this kind of second Cold War framing that some people have. Very important, I think, you know, open lines of communication. Uh, I think, you know, we, we need to have channels where we can um, have dialogue with the Chinese government to make sure that we avoid any kind of an, an accidental escalation. And so that's something I, I worry about a, a little bit as the Secretary of the Army. Secretary Romo, thank you very much for joining us. And I also want to thank the audience for bearing with us despite the technical difficulty. So let me now uh, use a quick 30 seconds to um, make a plug for our upcoming event. Uh, so we have our next China Power event next Monday, December 6th at 4 p.m. The event will cover uh, two debaters, uh, two leading experts debating the proposition that China's crackdown on its technology firms will significantly stifle Chinese technological and scientific innovation. Please join us for that debate if you're available. Uh, if not, we still have a couple of other debates coming up. Um, so let me end here and thank Secretary Wormuth for joining us and all the audience for staying with us for most of our time. And our apologies again for ending early. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>